0: My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor here. All right, you guys, uh, let's go ahead and grab our Bibles. We're going over to Acts chapter 2 this morning. Acts chapter 2, we are continuing our invitation to more series. We are in the second phase of the series where we are talking about uh, force multipliers of grace, things that help us uh, move into the dynamic flow of grace in our lives. Uh, God's intent to change us into the image of His Son, to free us, to, to bless us. Uh, if, if you don't have a Bible, uh, by the way, go ahead and grab one off the chairs around you. We're going over to page 910 in our Bibles. Uh, if you're um, working with one of our booklets, uh, from this point forward in the series, we're just going to the blank note pages. Uh, so from now on, you're just going to the blank note pages, okay? I don't have to tell you. Um, again, big shout out to our creative team for putting this booklet together. Um, they did it kind of last minute, and it has been a, a real resource over the course of this series. Uh, if you came uh, after the start of the series and you didn't get one of these, we still have some available at Connection Point if, if you would like to uh, grab it and engage it. Uh, all of the previous sermons in the series are available online uh, on our website, and so um, you can get caught up and, um, and enter into the full series. All right, we are looking at Acts chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 42... Through 47, beginning with verse 42. And they devoted themselves, that is, the new believers, the collection of disciples in Jerusalem, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. All right, guys, we have been, over the course of this series, unpacking the 3G model of discipleship growth, right? This, this, this dynamic movement of, of us encountering a, a, a disruptive experience of grace, right, where God loves us in an unexpected way. Right? And the invitation of love, the invitation of, of grace breaks into our life and surprises us. Right? It's like like God did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, and He, and he did for us what we didn't deserve for Him to do. Right? He, he, the, 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 on the cross, the, the justice of God met the mercy of God. Right? When, when He became our substitute and took our place, and He died for our sins, He was our hero, and, and out of that flows this incredible gift of grace. Right? We're not defined by what we've done. We're, we're not limited by, by who we are. We are defined by what he's done. And our, our past is cleansed and our future is a blank slate of blessing. Unlimited blessing upon blessing, grace upon grace upon grace. And God initiates in love toward us and, and, and we are called to respond to that initiation. That, that's the only thing required of us. That we would respond and that response is called faith. Right? When we, we simply take God at His word and we trust Him. Right? Faith is simply saying, you are who you say you are and you've done what you've said you've done. And so my heart trusts the message that is given to me. My heart trusts Him more than it trusts me. I trust His salvation project instead of my self-salvation projects. I trust the righteousness that He has given me in Christ instead of the righteousnesses that I am working for in my own labor and effort. And out of that faith is birthed this incredible experience of gratitude. Gratitude is what, what flows when, when my heart is humbled at the gift and I take joy in the giver. Right? I look at this incredible gift that's given to me in Christ and I am, I am deeply humbled by the love, by the sacrifice, by, by the incredible generosity at the heart of God. I am humbled and then I take joy in the giver because, because it's an expression of love. Right. He is my Father, and he is, he is reaching out to me as His Son. He is reclaiming me for His family. So in humility and in joy, I experience this awakening gratitude. And this awakening gratitude, man, gratitude has a way of energizing. right, And that pushes me out in faith into these areas of growth that have been difficult for me. right? Those growth zone spaces where, where I learn to submit in areas of discomfort. Even though it's hard, even though it kind of hurts, even though it's painful, even though it costs me something, I learn to submit in these areas. And in submitting, I grow. My comfort zone is increased and my joy is increased in Christ. I grow in obedience and I grow in generosity. And in those zones of growth, man, where I'm really wrestling and and I'm in those places of discomfort and, and God's grace is equipping me, then I push back into that grace to continue to grow, right? When I'm growing, I'm pushed back into the grace that pushed me into the growth. And that renewed experience of grace pushes me into a more profound experience of gratitude, and that more profound experience of gratitude propels me out into more and deeper growth, right? It is the dynamic cycle of change in the Christian life. This is how we change. This is how we grow. This is the engine that drives transformation in the Christian life. Now, in this part of the series, that was the first part of the series, in this part of the series, we're talking about the force multipliers uh, that help us grow, the things that God has given us, the the things that we can devote ourselves to, the things that we can give ourselves to that help us increase our experience of grace because grace is the engine that drives the whole thing, right? And, And so in verse 42, when we read that the early church devoted themselves, right, and they devoted themselves to these five specific things, they devoted themselves to them because those things drove them into grace and, and increased their experience of grace. It taught them about grace and gave them a, a greater understanding of it. And they were, they were transformed, right? There, was, there, was, there are a few accounts of, of a more transformed uh, body of believers uh, ever. I mean, these guys were radically changed, and, and it was so radical that, that they just kept growing. People kept seeing what was going on in the early church, and they're like, I want to get me some of that, right? There's something going on over there I don't have. There's something going on over there that my life's not giving me. There's something over there I can't explain in natural ways. And so the, the, the early church exploded in growth, right? They were devoted to these things. And, and over the last couple of weeks, we looked at how they were devoted to the apostles' doctrine which means they were devoted to the Word, right? They were devoted to the Bible. Last week, uh, Joe preached and and talked about how they were devoted to community, right? To the fellowship, to koinonia, the sharing of life, knowing and being known, loving and being loved. They were pushed into deep community with one another, and that experience of community expanded their experience of grace. This week, we're going to talk about that next phrase. They were devoted to the breaking of bread which is kind of a weird phrase for us. Uh, they were devoted to the breaking of bread. I mean, what does that mean, right? Why would you be devoted to breaking bread? Um, when the Bible talks about the breaking of bread, it's talking about what, what we refer to today as communion, or, or in certain circles, the Eucharist, right? This, this, this powerfully um, symbolic meal that points us back to the, the body and the, and the blood of Christ, right? The breaking of bread. The early church didn't call it communion. The early church didn't call it the Eucharist. The early church called it the breaking of bread. And I think it's kind of important to know why. Um, when I was visiting Kyrgyzstan um, several years ago, I had the privilege of, of going, and, and we had a team on the ground in, in, in Central Asia, and I had the opportunity to go and, and just live in that community um, for, for almost a couple weeks. And, and, and it was really eye-opening to me. It was my first time in a in, in a, um, a Middle Eastern uh, culture and, and, and setting. And, uh, and they do life a little bit differently than us, right? We hear about these things, but it was different to experience it, right? Um, so one of the things that was very different is the way they did meals, right? When they got together for a meal, it was an event, right? They, they actually brought in, um, there were usually multiple households that lived together on, on a single, uh, like, homestead, if you want to put it that way. And at mealtime, they would all come together, and they would come around this table and, and, and they had a saying. And that saying was, bread is life. Like that was just a common saying in that culture. Bread is life. They made fresh bread every day. Every day, they had these, these special ovens, which in Kyrgyzstan they called pechkas. It was a, a, a Russian designed oven, but, but they're all over the Middle East. And, and there are these ovens that they, they basically um, make this bread, they stick it to the roof of the oven, it cooks inside until it falls off. And, and so they have fresh, we, we call it naan. That's what, you know, if you've ever had naan, that's, that's how they, it's incredibly good, right? And so they make a ton of this stuff every day because bread is life, and bread is at every meal. Bread is like incredibly important. And so what ends up happening is you come in, and, and they don't sit at tables like we do. They actually uh, sit on the floor. And so um, you, would, you would sit cross-legged at a low table, um, or you would recline at table, which that's actually when you read the New Testament and you hear that, that Jesus and his disciples came together for that final meal. It says they reclined at table, which meant they were, they were actually laying on their side, and they would, and they would lay next to each other which is why it says John rested his head on Jesus' breast. I don't know if you've ever thought, man, that's weird, right? You picture people sitting around the table in chairs, and John's like, hi, Jesus, right? That, that is weird, right? It's, it's a little less weird because they're actually laying next to each other, reclining at table, um, and, and so each person has, like, they're on one arm, and they're eating with one arm, and, and they're, they're reclining next to each other, right? And, and, and so what ends up happening is, is in these communal meals, they're actually passing food around, right? Um, you don't get your own personal serving. That's not the way it works, right? There, there are big bowls of rice and big piles of bread, and you just pass it around, and, and you eat with your hands. I loved it, right? It's like, yeah, I don't have to worry about which side of the, the fork goes on, right? You just, you're, you're eating with your hands. You're passing things around. Some of you are, like, really getting creeped out. Um, I'm just gonna tell you, this is how most of the world has eaten for most of the world, right? This is apparently okay, and so these guys are, are, are sitting around the table, and they're breaking bread, They're sharing a meal. What I want you to see, and and the reason I'm describing this, is that it's more than just eating food. They're sharing an experience. They're actually sharing life. The people at your table are sharing in the fruit of your labor. You've worked all day long to harvest that food, to prepare that food, to bring that food to table. You got up early in the morning to, to make that bread. They are taking part in your labor they are receiving your blessing when Jesus at that last supper that Thursday night is, as he is reclining at table with his disciples at the end of the meal he he took the bread which in this case uh, since it was a Passover meal more than likely was was unleavened more like matzah bread and he broke it and in breaking it he gave it a new meaning he said, this is my body for you. The disciples are scratching their heads. They don't know what he's talking about. But they're not that surprised because he did that a lot. Right? He would say all kinds of things that just didn't make sense to them in the moment. And they're like, okay, someday we'll get this. So he broke the bread. He said, this is my body, and it's broken for you. What he's saying is, I'm doing the work. You're going to share in the blessing. I'm inviting you to my table. And inviting you to my table, I'm inviting you into my life. I'm inviting you into relationship with me. I am inviting you into this space of intimacy. And in this place of intimacy, you're going to receive the fruit of my labor. You're going to receive the blessing of my effort on your behalf. This bread is, Bread is life, right? But this bread represents my life, given for you, so that you can live. And then he took the cup, and, um, and and he gave the cup a new meaning. Right? He says this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus was, as we know, getting ready to go to the cross. The disciples didn't understand that; they didn't know that at the time. This is Thursday night. Um, before Friday morning would come, he would have already been arrested and gone through several mock trials and have been beaten, um, and he'll be crucified on, on Friday. Um, but, but at this point, they don't understand that, and, and, and he's getting ready to go to the cross, and he's getting ready to, to become a sacrifice to inaugurate the new covenant. Right? Not like the old covenant that, that the Jews were used to. The old covenant where they had to, to obey and, and, and bring sacrifices for when they didn't. Right? They had to, to work hard to obey and they had to bring sacrifices for, for when they failed. Right? You had to perform and sacrifice. The new covenant doesn't work like that. Right, The new covenant is He performs and we receive the benefit. He is sacrificed for our failure and we are covered in His righteousness. The new covenant, right? And then he says this profound thing, do this in remembrance of me. And the disciples are like, all right, I don't know why we need to remember you, you're right here, right? But you have to know that those words echoed with profound meaning later. As they thought back on that night, as they thought back about, 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 Man, they were taken off guard Thursday night, right? We see that clearly when we read through the text. They're sleeping, they're taken off guard, they're all freaking out. Peter tries to chop off somebody's head and only gets their ear and and, and things are just chaotic and and they all go running off into the night terrified and, 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 and it all just goes bad, right? And what they realize within four short days is that Jesus wasn't taken off guard, that this was all part of the plan, that he had to go to that cross, He had to die so that he could rise again. And in dying for our sin and rise again for our righteousness, he could offer us a new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. So as the early church gathered to eat, most of the people in the early church only heard this story. There there were only uh, 12 men that, that were actually at this meal. But these 12 men, you have to know, man, these apostles, they talked about this all the time just like they talked about all the things they experienced with Jesus. So the early church, is as they gathered to eat, as they gathered to break bread, that's what they described their meals, right? As they gathered to break bread, they would pass the bread around the table. And you have to know, every time they broke that bread, they were reminded of Jesus. Every time they passed that bread, they remembered. Which means every time they passed that bread, their hearts were prompted to worship. In awe, in gratitude, in an overwhelming sense of, of, of inadequacy, to look at the gift, and to be humbled in the gift, and to look at the giver, and to be ignited in love. They worshiped. So these meals um, we're not private and isolated like ours are. You know, in America, we are very private. We like our white picket fences, we like our private space, we like our private family meals. Um, during this time and in this culture, uh, meals were more communal. They really were and, and, and still are in much of that culture where, where you have the entire group, the entire small community coming together to share this meal. And so it was a community event. And, and in that community event, you have to know there was a moment in every meal when they looked around as they were breaking this bread. And they looked in each other's eyes and they had the common understanding. We did this to him and we needed this from him. There was a deep sense of community that came in sharing that humility. There was a deep sense of community that grew out of sharing that love. The meal. So the meal um, came to become a natural gathering point for the early church, right? The early church went from house to house, and, and, and they didn't have rhythms like we have today, where they had one gathering a week, right? These guys met from house to house. They didn't, they didn't have those rhythms. And so as they went from house to house, and as they, as they gathered for a meal, that became the time, the natural time for the gathering of the church. And so at the gathering of the church, we know that they would, they would sing hymns, and, 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 and they, would, they would listen to the apostles' doctrine, and, and they would pray, and, and they would break bread. They would, they would do this in remembrance of me, right? They didn't go to church. They were the church, right? They they were the living embodiment of the church. The word church, ecclesia, literally means the called out people of God, right? This building is not the church. It is the place where the church gathers, right? They, They were the church, and they didn't just do this once a year. They did it as often as they gathered, They did it from house to house. They did it as as often as they broke bread in community. They did it in remembrance of Him. So this breaking of bread, this thing that we call communion, was the heart of the corporate gathering of the church. As the people of God came together, as these new believers in Jesus came together, and they listened to the apostles' doctrine, and they prayed together, and, 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 and they, they, they um, shared uh, community and, and, and life, there was a moment at which they would come together for the unique opportunity of remembering Jesus in the bread and in the cup. That's where we get communion. Now you're thinking, Steve, we don't we don't we don't do it like that, right? We don't we don't have a big meal, right? We don't in fact later on they became called agape feasts, agape love feasts. Agape is, a, is the Greek word for love, and, and, and as the church grew, these things actually started taking on a name and, and and we don't do that, right? We don't gather for a meal, and that's all right. We don't have to. Right? And I'll, I'll tell you why, because what we read in in, in the book of Acts is descriptive, not prescriptive, right? It describes what happened in the early church. It doesn't prescribe what has to happen now. I mean, some people tend to get a little hung up on this, right? They're like, well, you know, they, they only passed around one, one loaf and, and so, or one piece of, you know, and, and so we should only be breaking one loaf when we come together as a church, well, when your church gets big, that's going to be a really big loaf. Okay, that that's descriptive, not prescriptive. Not only that, if you're really going to say it has to be one, then it needs to be matzah. It needs to be unleavened bread. So it needs to be the world's largest piece of matzah bread that we can that we can share with hundreds of of, of believers. Right? This is it's descriptive. It's not prescriptive. And if you're going to get Prescriptor way, you might as well say, man, we've got to be at a table and get rid of our chairs. We need to be laying down and, and somebody's head needs to be resting on my breast and, and we need to be passing this thing around and drinking out of the same cup and eating with our fingers and all dudes need to be wearing dresses, okay? Because that's what happened. That's what happened. All right, so let's not get hung up on how they did it. We need to focus on why they did it right? We're going to do it differently because we're a different time and we're a different culture, and that's okay. But we need to do it for the same reason they did it. And we need to do it trying to chase the same experience they had. So we do it differently than they did, but we do it for the same reason. So how is the breaking of bread? How is communion? How is worship, a force multiplier, in, in, in our experience of grace, right? How does it help us grow in this, in this transformative experience of grace, gratitude, and growth? Well, you need to understand, first of all, we were created to worship, which means we have no choice but to worship, right? You were created in the image of God to worship God, which means that, that you were actually created to pour yourself out to something, looking for something in return. We talked about this when we were teaching through Romans 12, 1 and 2, right? We talked about how, how there's that crazy command from Paul, you need to offer your bodies a living sacrifice to God, right, in worship. And we're like, that doesn't sound very fun, but the reality is we are offering ourselves as a living sacrifice to something all the time. We are, we are going to pour ourselves out, right? The, the word worship comes from a, 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 an older English word that means worth-ship, It is something that we assign ultimate worth to. We will pour ourselves out to what we assign ultimate worth to. We were created to worship. We will worship. It is not a religious activity. It is a human activity. We will pour ourselves out to what we assign ultimate worth. We will be living sacrifices to something, to what we assign ultimate worth worth two the very last verse of first john says this it says little children keep yourselves from idols uh i always thought that was kind of a funny way to end right this incredible epistle this letter from john last thing he says is hey little children meaning everybody in the church because john at this point is old and he's like that grandpa figure and everybody's little children right so he's like hey little children keep yourselves from idols kind of an odd thing, right? What, what are the idols going to chase you down? Right? I mean, during this period of time, idols were, were literally carved objects, right? They, they were made by craftsmen, right? And, 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 and those craftsmen would, would, would carve them or make them and then sell them and market them. And, and, and it's like, well, why do you need to keep your... What are they going to do? Just show up on your dresser one day? Oh, no, they're chasing me, right? The answer is yes, they will do that. Um, because idols aren't physical things. I mean, they can be manifest by physical things. They can be represented by carvings. Um, but, but idols don't come from out there. Idols, idols, idols come from in here. Idols come from worldly worship. Now, remember, worldliness. Worldliness isn't, isn't the bad stuff out there. Worldliness is our way of doing life apart from God. God. Worldliness is whatever we do to try to get from life what only God can give, but we're trying to get it without relationship with God. We're trying to avoid dependence on God. right? So it can be everything from going to the strip club or going to church. Whatever you're doing to try to avoid actual dependence on God, humility before God, relationship with God is a manifestation of worldliness. Worldly worship is called idolatry. When we pour ourselves out to things that aren't God and look to those things to do for us what only God can do to be for us what only God can be. Now here's the thing with idols. They're really, really sneaky. That's why we have to keep ourselves. That's why we need to guard ourselves. Idols don't just show up as these ugly little statues on our dressing table. Idols show up in the things that we love. Because idols aren't bad things. They're good things that we turn into ultimate things. Right? Idols aren't bad things. They're good things that we turn into ultimate things. They're good things in our lives that that we say, you are of ultimate worth. You are of ultimate value. You will do for me what only God can do. You will be for me what only God can be. They are good things that we turn into ultimate things. I would say there are... um, four heart idols. Now, I've spoken about this before, and I don't have time to unpack all of that, um, but I will tell you that when I, I went through a sermon series about two years ago called God Is, it is on our website, and, um, and in that sermon series, I unpack these heart idols in much more detail. Uh, so they are available if you want to, to dig into this more. This morning, I can only do a survey uh, and kind of move me through this, through this fairly quickly, but, but there are, I believe, four heart idols. And I'm going to explain what I mean by this, right? Approval, respect, control, and comfort. So Darren Patrick, who uh, was my pastor for years, used to have this, this paradigm that I found very helpful. He talked about source idols and surface idols, source idols and surface idols. And the reason I found that helpful is, is that it really kind of helped me categorize the struggles in my own life. Let me give you an example. We, we've been talking about generosity, right? That was one of the, one of the sermons was, was on generosity, right? How, how one of the manifestations of somebody growing in grace is they will become more generous. They will sacrifice their time They will sacrifice their their limited relational capacity. They will sacrifice from their finances. They will will grow generous because as they receive grace, grace will release them from their greed and and they will move out into generosity. And and some folks, myself included, at times, um, or often, (laughs) struggle with generosity, right? There are times when I have an opportunity to be generous and I'm like, I think I've given enough, I think I'm done for now, right? Don't I get credit for like yesterday? And so, so maybe that's you too. Maybe there have been times when, when God moved in your heart and gave you an opportunity for generosity and, and you were like, you know what, I, I don't think so. We'll talk about finances. Like maybe somebody was in need and, and, and you could have met the financial need, but you decided you, man, you just didn't want to make the sacrifice to make it happen. Or maybe there was an opportunity to be a blessing to somebody financially, and, and you could have done it. But you, you pulled back. You self-protected. And maybe that is actually a pattern in your life. And if it's a pattern in your life, then th- th- maybe money is an idol in your life. Maybe greed is an idol in your life. But here's the thing with, with idolatry is that there's always an idol under the idol. There's always a sin under the sin. So, so if I'm struggling with greed, there's a reason I'm struggling with greed. Greed is the surface idol. There is a source idol that drives it. I have to ask, why am I greedy? Right. True generosity requires me to sacrifice. Right. If we're just giving out of what we have left over, we're not generous. That's not generosity right? That's not even tipping, right? That, that's, that's, that's not... Generosity always costs us something. True generosity always requires us to sacrifice, to, to extend it, right? And so, so what makes it hurt so much, right? Why does it hurt so much? And you're like, well, because I'm giving up money. Yeah, but ask the deeper question. You are giving up money, but you have to understand why do you have such a death grip on it? Why is it so hard for you to release it? Well, you know, I'm if, I'm, if, I, if I think about it, I'm honest about it, I, I think, man, I'm just trying to live up to this image my dad had of me, right? Because, because I'm afraid that if I, don't, if I don't live up to a certain standard, if I don't have a certain amount of money, if I don't have a certain amount of success, my dad is going to think I'm a failure, even though he passed away 15 years ago. I'm still trying to live up to this image that he planted in my head, you know, and, and, and I just, you know, people will see me in a bad light if, I, if, I, if I'm not a success, well, see, there your greed is the surface idol, but the source idol is approval. The reason you're greedy is because you have a deep need for the approval of, of somebody, or somebody's in your life. Well, well, maybe it's not that. Maybe you know, Steve, it's not that. It's just that if I give up that money, I, 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 you know, it's it's if I sacrifice that, I, I, I feel like I won't be. That's powerful. I won't be able to sustain this, this image. If I have to give up this, this luxury item, or if I have to sell this thing to, to be generous in that way, man, I just, I feel like I'm losing. I hate losing, right? I, I bought this. I worked for this. I've earned this, and it is my badge, and it shows that I'm winning, and if I have to give this up to be generous over here, man, I'm losing. The surface idol is greed, but the source idol is respect. If I'm not respected, I, I'm, I'm dying. I, I can't give money because, man, that threatens my deep need to be respected. And The way I'm respected is by people seeing my, my financial affluence. You're like, Steve, that's not me at all, man. I, I don't care about somebody's approval. I don't care about, about winning I just feel like I I need to keep a certain number in the bank account or I just feel really vulnerable and exposed. I have to have this nest egg. I have to have this this wall of, like I've invested into these these savings accounts or in these IRAs or into these these things and, and they give me security. So your greed is not driven by by approval or respect but your greed is driven by this idea that if that if i push into generosity i'm going to be made more vulnerable i'm i'm gonna i i I need to protect myself i need to build walls i need to be in i I will be out of control i will be at risk and so you're driven by a, a source idol of control and you hate feeling like you're out of control Maybe you're like, nah, no, see, that's not it, man. That's not it at all. I mean the reality is I'm just honest. The reason I, I don't want to be generous is that if I give that money, it means I can't do the things I want to do. I can't eat at the nice restaurants I want to eat at. I, I can't I can't afford the new, you know, the new game system or the new the new HD curved 4K thirteen B TV with glasses, right? I, I just the new, you know what I'm saying? Like, like your thing is if I if I'm generous. It encroaches on my comfort. If I'm generous, I can't live the kind of life that I really want to live, which is a life of I want that that low that low maintenance hassle-free life, man. That's what I want. And so your your greed, the surface idol, is driven by a source idol of, of, of comfort. You guys, greed is a problem. Greed is a problem. Greed is um, going to block your experience of grace. Because greed is going to block you from moving out in generosity. And generosity is, is one of the ways God grows us into a deeper experience of grace. Right? God gave freely to us, and he wants us freed up into the free giving of grace. He wants us into this, to move into this radical flow of grace of receiving and giving and giving and receiving. He, he doesn't want us hoarding. He doesn't want us saying, thanks very much, I've got this, and I'm not going to let it go. Because, because when, as soon as we get like this, we can't receive anymore. He, he wants us giving. So greed is a problem. But greed isn't the real problem. Greed is an idol, but, but greed isn't the real idol. If you really want to get to the heart of it, if you really want to get to the root of it, you've got to get down to that source idol. The deeper problem is the sin under the sin. So, Steve, how do I know which one I have? Well, you got them all. Congratulations. You hit the jackpot. You got them all. Now, more than likely, you're driven by one. More than likely, you have one dominant idol. Idols don't play well with each other. And, and, and so generally, you have one. And, and, and what I have found with a lot of people is they have like a major and a minor. You know what I'm saying? Like, like they've got a number one, a number two. Um, and, and, uh, and what we love to do is judge people who have different idols than us. <laughs> we love that, right? I'm a hard worker, and I'm driven by an idol of respect, and I love to judge people that have an idol of comfort and call them lazy, right? I'm so superior to you and my idolatry to your idolatry. Right, I mean, we love to do that. It puffs us up in pride and it lets us put shame on other people. You guys, that's worldliness. It is, it is the game of diminishing returns. It is not the path of grace. We need to learn to repent of our idols. So if you want to know what your idol is, just follow the wise. Why do I have a hard time doing that? Why does that obedience hurt so much? Why does, does that thing really just tighten me up. Why? And it'll help you find the problem. So you guys, here's the thing. What are we supposed to do with these idols? What are you supposed to do with idols? When, when, when God's people found idols all throughout the scriptures, what were they called to do? Tear them down. Tear them down. It's the only thing that is appropriate to do with an idol. Destroy it. Because that idol is, in fact, your chief barrier to life. It is robbing you of life. It pretends like it's giving you power, but it is actually the the hole in in the bottom of your boat. It, It is robbing you of life and blocking you from joy. But here's the thing with idols, heart idols. You can't just go into your heart and tear them down. Right? In the Old Testament, if you were brave enough and, and you were willing to, you could climb on up and get one of those astros and tear it down and be all like, yeah, right? But heart idols, you can't do it through willpower. You can't do it through, through I'm just going to do this thing, right? You can't white knuckle your way through tearing down your heart idols because even as you're white knuckling it, the heart idol just moves around to a different spot and actually starts driving that behavior. The, the only way to tear down a heart idol is with real, with real worship. Because heart idols thrive on misplaced worship. They thrive on us taking a good thing and making it an ultimate thing. We need to take the ultimate thing and see it and recognize it as ultimate. We need to see God as God. And we need to reorient our heart in genuine worship. We need real, God-centered, Jesus-focused worship. And we need corporate worship, not just personal worship, corporate worship. Because in worship, you re-center your heart on the central truths that will set you free. Right? Very, very quickly, just to hit this. Right? If if, if I am plagued by an idol of, of of approval, man, I need to hear that God is gracious. I need to hear it over and over and over again that I don't have to prove myself. I don't have to earn somebody's favor. I don't, I don't, have, to, I don't have to get you to like me to be okay because God is gracious. I am covered with the approval of Christ. I cannot lose the approval of God because I am covered in Christ. God is gracious. If I am driven by, by a, a, uh, um, an idol of respect, I need to hear that God is glorious, that I don't have to win to be okay. I don't have to build my personal glory to somehow make myself worthy. I am covered in the very glory of Christ. God is glorious. I can rest in his glory. God is glorious so I can lose to his glory. In the same way, Jesus lost to his glory because there is a glorious winning and losing. There is something in, in, in radically beautiful in the kingdom of God in laying it all down so that you can receive it all back right? If I'm driven by, by a, a, an idol of, of, of control, I need to hear that God is great, that God, God's got this thing, that, that I don't have to have all my T's crossed and I's dotted. I, I don't have to have all my spreadsheets perfectly laid out. I, I don't have to have everyone's behavior buttoned down because God is great. And because God is great, man, I can rest in his greatness. I can, I can let him be in control. And if I am driven by an idol of comfort, man, I need to hear that God is good. That God is good, and I don't have to find satisfaction outside of Him. That all of these distractions are, in fact, uh, empty pursuits. That true satisfaction comes from being loved, not being entertained. True true fullness of heart comes from being loved, not simply being distracted. You guys, worship does something incredible with these truths. So, like, I can put these truths in your head. Worship drives them down into your heart. All right? I found this really cool thing. I, I love steak and I love grilling. I, I don't cook very many things, but I love to cook steak. And, and um, I learned this trick, man. I can, I can take my, my rub, the, the, the seasoning, and rub my steaks in advance. The problem with those is if you, if you rub them in advance, especially the high salt ones, they pull all the moisture out of the meat. In fact, you can actually watch it happen. You'll actually see the, the steak and all the moisture starts just coming out onto the surface. And when you throw it on the grill, all the moisture just burns right off. Well, I learned this trick. If you let it sit long enough, it reabsorbs. All that goodness, man, it just goes right down into the meat. And, and then the salt isn't just on the surface. Right? That flavors all the way through. That's like worship, you guys. Worship, what it does is it takes these profound truths that sit up in our head and it marinates our heart. There's something holistically powerful about worship. When we come into the presence of God and we train our hearts to worship, it holistically moves these truths not just into our, our head where we know them, but into our heart where we believe them. And we start trusting. That's called faith. And we start growing in gratitude, which pushes us out in faith, which causes us to grow, which awakens our faith to re experience grace. Worship. You guys, all changes, all true change comes from responding to God's love, not from your performance for God, but in trusting God's performance for you. You cannot tear down these idols. If you try, you will be in a hopeless circle of despair. And guess what this does? As you wrestle with these things, it pushes you back into your helplessness. It pushes you back into your need for Grace because you're going to get frustrated with this, you guys. You're going to find, man, my best behavior is motivated by my most evil intents. Whoa, right? How am I going to fix this? Guess what? You're not. Praise God for grace. You get to run back to grace, to depend on God, to do for you what you can't do for yourself, to be cleansed from sins. You didn't even know you were committing. And then you're going to be amazed once again at grace. And in the amazement of grace, it's going to, fire up your faith and renew your gratitude and push you back out into growth. All true change comes from responding to God. And there's powerful, powerful experience that comes from responding to God together. It's not good enough to just put a podcast on in your car. It is not enough just to just have worship music in your car and you're having this deep, powerful, don't ever do that when you're driving, you're you know, having this deep, powerful experience with God while you're on the highway, right? Listen, God never called us to be Christian. He called us to be Christians. He he called us to a body, right? That's the primary metaphor used in the New Testament to describe the church, the body, right? What good is a fingernail? That's what you are. You need to be attached to the finger and that finger needs to be attached to the hand and the hand needs to be attached to the arm and the arm needs to be attached to the the torso and and it all needs to be enlivened by the heart and and driven by the brain. You need the body. There is something powerful that happens in corporate worship. There is something powerful that happens when we come together and we sing together and we share communion together and we break this bread and and we look around and I, I look at you and I'm like, you did this and so did I. And you need this, and so do I. There's something powerful in corporate worship. That's why the author of Hebrews said, do not forsake the gathering of yourselves together. You need the church. You need to worship with the church and sing with the church and be taught with the church. You need to share this experience with the church because it's a catalyst for growth. We need to be committed to the body. All right, you guys, I'm going to close this in our prayer. We're going to share communion. How cool is that? We're going to share communion together in just a moment. But let me pray for us and we're going to go into a time of reflection. Father, I thank you that you are a God who is good and great, and gracious, and glorious, that you are all the things we desperately want and are trying to find outside of you. You meet the deepest needs of our hearts in ways that our our families, and our careers, and our performance, and our fame, and our personal glory, and, and, and people's love for us, man, they just can never meet the deep needs of our heart because we were designed to worship you, to pour ourselves out at your altar, and that in the pouring out of our, our adoration and our praise and our humility before you to be filled back up with the overflow of your goodness. Lord, may we be a people that worship with authenticity. that come broken in our need to be filled by your glory. People who come not to be entertained, but but to be changed and engaged. People who don't come to critique, but come to, to consume the goodness of your glory with others who are desperate for grace. Lord, shape in us a growing desire for the experience of your transcendent presence. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.